welcome you to week one of a uh, brand new series that's going to take us out to the end of the summer that we're calling the church. And the aim of this series is to answer the question, what does it mean? Uh, what does it mean to be a Christian and a part of this thing called the church? And uh, what we're going to do for the next eight weeks is spend our time in the first four chapters of the New Testament letter known as Ephesians because those four chapters answer that question perhaps more succinctly than any other single place uh, in Scripture. And so before I get into the series, I wanted to just kind of take a few minutes on the, on the front end of this series to explain why I think this is even a question that's worth answering. Uh, back in the summer of 2014, I was preaching through 1 John, and one of the weeks that I was preparing one of those messages, I, um, I googled the phrase, psychological effects of working undercover. Came across a really interesting study, and I'll, I'll spare you all the details, but the study basically documented the struggles that agents who go undercover for long periods of time experience. And at the end of the study, it, it uh, had, a, had a particular example of an, an unnamed agent who uh, went undercover, uh, rode with the um, Hells Angels Motorcycle Club for 18 months. And this agent, uh, at the end of his assignment, was praised for outstanding police work. Their work led to dozens of arrests. It brought down some previously untouchable uh, leaders and, and drug lords, people that were just wreaking havoc in communities all over the nation. And he was basically ha hailed as a hero at the end of his assignment. But um, after 18 months going undercover, uh, he proved incapable of reintegrating back into his old life. He spiraled into drug addiction, into alcoholism. He lost his family. He quit his job. And wrap your head around this, this is a true story. He wound up robbing several banks and then ending up in prison himself. And it all really boils down to one thing. You ask yourself the question, how on earth do you go from being celebrated as a law enforcement hero to ending up in prison yourself? And in that individual's case, uh, it's real simple. He, f he just forgot who he was. I, I wanted to start this series by putting that study on your radar because it, it, it highlights, a, I think, a really sobering principle. The principle is that a wrong understanding of who you are can ruin your life or at least derail it. And it's, it, it's my conviction that, that really led to this next eight weeks. The reason I think it's so important, perhaps now than at any other time, at least during my ministry, that we spend as much time as is necessary answering this question. What does it really mean to be a Christian? What does it really mean to be a part of the church? Is because it's my conviction that really largely the problem underneath every other problem that individual Christians have and even local churches have is that we've... We've just forgotten who we are. And, and I'll tell you, as a pastor, I have seen that, maybe you have as well, but, but in, in this line of work, I, you know, I can't ignore it, that I've seen that on display more clearly since COVID than ever before. You know, it, to me, uh, in, in this line of work, what the last two weeks have revealed to me, if, if nothing else, what COVID has revealed is that Christians have a lot of different ideas about what the church even is. So what I want to do is just... Um, offer you four radically different ideas that the last two years have revealed a lot of different people have about the church. Uh, I think you'll agree with all four of them, and I'm sure you could add more to this list, but I'll, I'll offer you the, probably the big four for me. First off, I think it's clear the last two years um, that a lot of people view the church as little more than an extension of their political party. 
Let's get into it. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not going to get into it, actually. I've gotten beat up by those emails enough, so I'm just going to leave that there. But for people who approach church that way, what happens is in their mind, I think you've seen this as well, the job of the church becomes less about winning people and more about winning arguments. And for people that view the church that way, what happens is they may have been com committed to a community of believers for years, but the moment that they hear a teaching, it might even be based on the Word of God, the moment they hear a teaching that conflicts with their tightly held political ideology, they're out. We've seen a lot of that in the last two years. I'm not even talking about just here. I'm talking about everywhere. Uh, another really common one is, is a lot of people tend to approach the church like, uh, you know, a spiritual fast food restaurant, right? And, and in that frame of thinking, you know, the, the, the idea is that the church exists primarily to meet my needs as quickly and conveniently as possible. Uh, and, and so they'll commit to a church so long as that local church does that for them. But the moment a new restaurant opens up down the road that offers a better product at a cheaper price, now they're committed to that one until something else opens up down the road. And then they're committed to that one. And, and you know, on and on and on they go. Then you have this, this framework of, of thinking. It seems like a lot of people tend to view the church and relate to the church sort of like a fan does to a sports team where they would say, yeah, that's my team, that's my church, you know, they're committed, I got the jersey, I, you know, I cheer when things are going well, but at the end of the day, their approach to church is really that of a spectator from the outside looking in as opposed to somebody who's deeply committed and personally invested themselves. And then lastly, again, I mean, this is, this is quantifiable when you look at the research, this is certainly a mindset that was pervasive before COVID, but especially since COVID, what's clear is there is an ever-growing mindset, even among believers, that you don't really need church at all, that you can live out Christianity as prescribed by the Lord Jesus Christ without belonging to or committing to any community of Jesus followers whatsoever. Now, what this has done across the board is it has, first and foremost, damaged the church's witness uh, before a watching world as they've looked on and seen a church exactly as divided as the rest of the culture is. Along with that, it's violated the heart of Jesus, who in the hours before he went to the cross prayed that his people would be one, even as he and the Father are one. And perhaps more than anything else, it has hindered our ability to be and do what God has called his people to be and do. And, and really, I believe the issue underneath every other issue is, is we've simply, we've, we've forgotten, or maybe we never really knew who we really are. And so we're going to spend eight weeks talking about that. Now, as much as people hate being put into categories, I think it's safe to say that everyone listening to this right now and everyone who will listen to this series in the future falls into one of three categories. Number one, maybe you're not a Christian and you know you're not a Christian. Number two, maybe you think you might be a Christian. Number three, maybe you absolutely know that you are a Christian. And the good news is that no matter which one of those categories you fit into, this series is going to have something for you. So let's say you know you're not a Christian. You've rejected the message and you're listening to this because somebody asked you to or hopefully not, but maybe somebody forced you to. If that's where you're coming from, this series is going to be a really valuable resource for you because it's going to help you figure out and see whether or not you understand what it is you're rejecting. Because it's my conviction that a lot of people reject a version of Christianity that is actually not the Christianity laid out by the Christ himself. 
Uh, maybe you're listening to this and, and you think you're a Christian, but you're not really sure. Maybe you haven't even shared that with anybody else. But, you know, you can look back in your past and you think there was a time when there was a change, but you've wondered, was that just kind of an emotional uh, reaction to a psychological environment or was there a real change in your life? And again, this series is going to be great for you because it's going to help you know whether or not you actually are a follower of Jesus Christ. But thirdly and lastly, and I'm going to guess that most people fit into this category, Maybe you're listening to this and you know that you're a Christian. You don't really have any serious doubts about that. This series is going to be incredibly valuable for you because it's going to help you figure out whether or not you're living in line with what the Word of God says is true about you at this very moment. So wherever you're coming from, this series is going to have something for you. And my hope is that over the next eight weeks... You would allow your preconceived notions about Christianity and the church to be challenged, that you would allow yourself to be vulnerable, that you would be willing to let go of some of the baggage that perhaps you've been carrying around longer than you would even care to admit. But lastly and most importantly, the hope is that through this series and through our time in the book of Ephesians, that wherever you're coming from, you would be willing to take your next step in commitment to Jesus Christ and to the movement that he died in order to create that we refer to as the church. So with that, we're going to get this series started in Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read to you verses 3 through 14. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. We have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he planned in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. We've also received an inheritance in him, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. Commentators will tell you that that entire passage that you just heard me read in the original Greek is one giant run-on sentence. Even in the Greek, that was really poor grammar of Paul. And that giant run-on sentence is about exactly one thing. Paul tells you exactly what it is in the very first verse of this passage. It's that God has blessed us in Christ with absolutely every spiritual blessing. And in all the verses that follow, verses 4 to 14, all Paul's doing is explaining what he meant in verse 3. Now, just to kind of let you in my head, When I read New Testament letters, the two things that I pay the most careful attention to are beginnings and endings. Because in my mind, whatever an author begins his letter with is obviously what he considered to be of the utmost importance. I mean, in the intro of the letter, he's laying the foundation for everything else he goes on to say. 
And of course, endings are important because it's whatever he wanted to leave ringing in the ears of his readers. So just with that in mind, consider this. Ephesians is, is pretty much universally considered to be the best book in the Bible when it comes to helping you answer the question, what does it mean to be a Christian and a part of this thing called the church? Ephesians is basically the heavyweight champion of answering that question. And this book begins, it sort of explodes out the gate with this giant run-on sentence that's all about what you have the moment that you give your life to Jesus. And so the first thing that kind of hits me in the face here is that Paul, writing to explain what it means to be a follower of Jesus and a part of the community of the followers of Jesus, what, you're, what we're reading, what we're going over this morning, is that before Paul goes on to tell you what a Christian is, let alone what a Christian does, he tells you what a Christian has. The implied statement there is he doesn't even think it's worth telling you how you got to be a Christian or what you should do as a Christian until you understand what you have as a Christian. And what we're seeing here is that a Christian is someone who has absolutely every single spiritual blessing. So I'm going to spend some time this morning on the front end of this series kind of asking three questions about this concept. We're going to ask where you get these blessings, uh, secondly, what they are, and then thirdly, how do you know if you actually have them? So with that, I'll get to my first question today. How, where do these come from? Where are these blessings located? And the answer like I mentioned earlier, it's right on the front end of this passage, verse 3. It says, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us, here it is, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Believe it or not, no less than 11 times in this passage, you and I are told that these spiritual blessings, that every spiritual blessing are only ours in and through Jesus Christ. We're told that 11 different times in this passage alone. Obviously, when you see, whenever you see that kind of repetition in Scripture, that's God's way of saying, I really want you to understand the point here. And the point is that the moment you are united with Jesus, not the moment you start to clean your life up, not the moment you repent of your besetting sins, not the moment that your behavior finally catches up to what's true of you, it is the exact moment that you are united with Jesus, in that very moment, you have absolutely every single spiritual blessing. That's a pretty amazing thing to begin the letter of Ephesians with. So let's go a little bit deeper with this question and ask, okay, what does it mean to be united with Jesus? We talk about that, being in Christ, being united to Christ, being one with Christ, being joined with Christ. What's it actually mean? And in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, <coughs> Paul, the same author, tells us, that a Christian is somebody who is united with Jesus in at least two ways. That the moment you give your life to Jesus, you are united with Jesus both in his death and in his resurrection. So before I move on from this first move, let me look at both of those halves. Because chances are uh, you haven't thought about your relationship with Jesus like this before. First off, let's talk about what it means to be united with Jesus in his death. Uh, what I'm about to say is a little bit controversial, um, but it's, it's orthodox. Uh, Jesus, when you talk about Jesus' death, Jesus did not die primarily, emphasis on the word primarily here. Jesus did not die primarily as an example. He did not die primarily simply as an act of love. He died primarily as payment. 
I say that's controversial because it's funny. Somebody from this church sent me a TikTok, and that's how I know I'm pastoring in the year 2022, where a pastor was making the point that Jesus didn't need to die to pay for sins. You know, God would never require the death of his own son to pay for sins. He died just to show us how much he loves us. You know, there's no payment of sin involved there. And, and that might sound neat, but think of it this way. If your house is on fire and you're standing on the sidewalk watching it burn, but you've already gotten everything of value, including your own family out, and you're watching your house, you know, be consumed in flames, if your neighbor ran up to you and tapped you on the shoulder and said, watch how much I love you, and then ran into your burning house and sat down and was consumed there, you wouldn't say what an incredible act of love, you would say what a lunatic. There's just no purpose for that. And so Jesus, while his death is an example of sacrifice for people who aren't even appreciating what he was doing. While it certainly was an act of love, the primary reason Jesus went to the cross was to pay for sin. Every human law, this is a helpful way to think about it, every human law, when broken, requires that there's always a payment attached to it. That payment might be monetary, it might be community service, it might be hard time in jail, but the point is, when that payment is made, that law loses its claim over the one who broke it. It's no different with God's law. And so Scripture reminds us that the, the payment or the wages of sin, the wages for breaking the law of God is death. And so that's exactly what Jesus came to do, to satisfy that law so that it would lose its claim over the lawbreakers through his death. So here's what this means. I don't know if you've ever heard about it this way, but this is why it makes absolutely no sense for a Christian to walk around with any kind of guilt or condemnation. When Scripture says that, that when you give your life to Jesus, you are united with Jesus in his death, it means that you are as free from guilt and condemnation in Jesus as if you had died for your own sins personally. And because God is a just God and will never demand two payments for the same crime, it means that in Christ, God's law can never make a claim on you. That's why somebody with as much red in their ledger as Paul could say with confidence there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Hope that means something to somebody. You know, you can never tell. The 9 and the 11 a.m. service are like two different churches. It seems like when you're really saying something that means something to the 9, they get louder, but with the 11, you get quieter. So we just have to guess that you're not asleep or something. That's what it means to be united. There are, okay, we got one. That's what it means to be united with Jesus in his death. So then what does it mean to be, re, to be united with Jesus in his resurrection? To answer that question, let me ask a question. That's annoying. I'm going to do it anyway. What does Jesus' resurrection represent? And admittedly, you, 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 you could ask, you can answer that question a lot of different ways. But Jesus' resurrection, at the very least, was his vindication. Jesus' resurrection proved that he was who he said he was. This is how the first preachers of Christianity, you can see this all through the book of Acts, this is how they thought of and this is how they communicated the resurrection. All right, if Jesus was just a normal man, then when he died, he would have done what normal men do. And normal men, as you may or may not have heard, tend to stay dead. But when Jesus came back to life, it proved that whoever sin he was dying for on the cross, it evidently was not his own. And so the resurrection was the validation that Jesus actually was who he claimed to be. You may have heard me point this out before, but historians, both Christian and secular, will tell you it's very difficult to explain how Christianity got off the ground, 
how it survived the Roman Empire, and why we're still talking about it 2,000 years later, and it's gone into every nation, tribe, and tongue the way that really no other major belief system has, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to explain Christianity apart from the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The, the only way that, that, that it really makes sense is if Jesus was actually raised. The reason for that is because when people saw the resurrected Messiah, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 people saw him with their own two eyes at once. When people saw the resurrected Messiah, there was no doubt any longer about who he was. For them, that settled the debate. The verdict was in. In their eyes, Jesus no longer had anything to prove. All right, so with all that in mind, what it means for you to be united with Jesus in his resurrection means that in God's eyes, you no longer have anything to prove. You have nothing to earn. You have nothing to achieve. There's no need to justify yourself because the moment you put your trust in Jesus, the victory of Jesus Christ became your victory. And I'm I'm sure you've probably heard the story of David and Goliath before. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to this. Have you ever noticed that when David slew Goliath, David wasn't the only one that was excited about it? You You ever pay attention to that detail? All of Israel went nuts. Now, they didn't do anything They didn't lift a finger. They didn't have the courage to even stand before Goliath, yet they were cheering when David won because they understood that the victory of their hero meant the victory for all of them. So it is with the church of Jesus Christ. The victory of our hero is all of our victory, the moment that we put our trust in him. That's what it means to be in Christ. So according to this, first and foremost, every single spiritual blessing is yours. It doesn't mean you're going to be tripping over the fruit of the Spirit in your life because it takes time to grow, but all of those blessings are yours, at least in embryonic form, the moment that you give your life to Jesus. Because the moment you give your life to Jesus, His death and His resurrection have been applied to your account to the point that when God looks at you, He sees you as though you have died and been raised yourself. So secondly, building off of that, let's ask the question, if that's where those blessings come from, what are they? What are every spiritual blessing? I know that that's a grammatical error, but you understand what I'm going for here. Admittedly, this is my disclaimer, I can't elaborate in one teaching about all that that Paul means here, even in this passage. So what I want to do is just take two of these blessings that he he takes the time to remind you of, and what what I'd like to do is walk through them in reverse order. And hopefully you'll see why I do that in a moment. So I want to start by looking at what Paul reminds you you already have In verse 7, he says, We have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So so let me pause here for a minute. That is, um, that's, when most people think about Christianity, what I just said is what they think of. Uh, they, th- they think of forgiveness. They think of the pardon for the life that you've lived. But a- actually, I don't, before I move on from this, Paul's making a pretty profound statement about uh, humanity in, the, in, in that verse alone with this word redemption. Uh, it, it almost definitely does not hit you and I as hard as it would have hit the original recipients of this letter, but the word redemption means liberation from slavery through a form of payment. Now, again, it's a, that's come to be a very religious kind of churchy word. We even name you know, churches Redemption House or Redeemer or those kinds of things, so you've heard that before. But for people in the city of Ephesus, that would have been pretty shocking to hear. It probably would have been the first time they'd ever heard anything like that because if you know anything about the ancient city of Ephesus, it was a leading city in the Roman Empire. 
they had, um, they had these, these guilds. They were known for their, their uh, craftsmanship. And so there were a lot of kind of upper-crust cultural elites there that basically set the tone for the rest of the Roman Empire, meaning not a lot of people in Ephesus were slaves. And so a lot of people in the church at Ephesus were not slaves. So they would have read verse 7 that they've been redeemed by Jesus, and the first thought that came to their mind would have been, but I was never a slave. What Paul is saying here is, yes, you were. And what the rest of the Bible says is no matter what you think of yourself, even outside of God, you're not free. I, I think one of the greatest lies that's ever taken root in the human heart, and if, actually if you go back to Genesis 3, I think it's actually the first lie that took root in the human heart that's led to every other lie we believe, is this idea that when you surrender to God, you, know, you lose your freedom, but outside of God, you're free. That's just not the case. Scripture teaches that no matter what you believe, and even if you're a secular person that would say, I don't really believe in anything at all, what every human heart has in common, this is just a function of our design, is by default, we orient our lives around something. That means that, that whoever you are listening to this, you are, whether or not you know what this thing is, you're looking to something to give your life ultimate meaning, purpose, satisfaction. You're building your identity on it. You're, you're building your sense of self-worth on it. And whatever that thing is, functionally, you're enslaved to it functionally, that thing is occupying the place that the Word of God would say is only safe for God to occupy. Now, in, in our culture, which is, you know, kind of increasingly becoming more and more secular, the things that tend to occupy that place in our lives are things like romantic love, you know, our physical appearance, our reputation, our money, our career. Those are really common ones. So let me ask the question, what's the problem with that? What's the problem if, 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 take for instance, because it's such a common one, let, let's look at career. What's the problem with orienting your life around your career and basically making that your functional master? A lot of different ways I can answer this question, but I'll do it like this. The primary problem is that your career will not give its life for you. Quite the opposite, it will demand that you give your life for it over and over and over and over until your life is gone. And anybody who's gone down that road long enough, and I'm sure there's a whole lot of people that can relate to this because not, not only is workaholism a common addiction in our culture, it's one of the only addictions we actually celebrate. Anybody who's gone down that road long enough knows at least two things to be true. First off, when you make career and career success your God, what you will find, this is one of the best ways to know if you've done this, is that no success is ever enough for you. You never feel like you can rest. You never feel like you've arrived. You know, every day you have to justify yourself and hop back on the treadmill that never seems to slow down long enough for you to be able to catch your breath. And the longer you go down that road, the more it begins to distort who you are as a person, which all forms of idolatry do. And so what will happen, the more that you make career, the more that you allow your career and your success, the, 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 the place that only God can safely hold in your life, is it will turn you more and more into a restless person, an angry person, uh, an anxious person, and you'll vacillate between those, these two poles of, on the one hand, feeling inferior to people who are more successful than you, while also feeling superior and looking down on people who you think you're more successful than. And so my point is, on the one hand, the problem with making take your career, your master, your idol, your God, is that it won't satisfy you even if you succeed, but, but maybe more, in, in, more damagingly, it won't forgive you when you fail. Because anybody, again, who's done this knows 
that, that you know, your life is, is if, if your career is your master, then your life, you're only allowed to have joy. You're only allowed to have peace if your career is absolutely going the way you want to all the time. Problem with that is it never works like that. And so if, if there comes a day when your career is over, or, or you never get the job that you wanted to get, or you never arrive at the place you wanted to arrive at, or your small business never takes off and goes the way that you wanted it to go, then what will happen is that God will pin you to the ground and it will never let you up. It will punish you with feelings of, of inadequacy and condemnation all your life. And what Paul is saying here is Jesus is the one exception to that rule. Jesus is the one master who instead of demanding that you give your life for him, first gave his life for you so that you could experience real freedom in him. And when and not if you and I fail him, even after we've given our lives to him, he is willing to offer us something that really no other master ever will, which is forgiveness. That's what Paul is saying here here in verse 7. And like I said, that's kind of the idea of salvation that I, I, I feel like we all naturally default to, at least I personally naturally default to. The problem is, I think generally speaking, we tend to stop there. So building off of this, I want to look at what Paul says now in verse 5. <clears throat> he says, He predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will. Let me pause there. So if you read this in other versions of the Bible, it'll say not just that he predestined us for adoption, but that he predestined us for adoption to sonship, which is not a word that you hear today because this really isn't a practice that we have today. But in Paul's day, sonship was a, a legal standing that could be bestowed on a slave that would change their life forever. And the way that it worked is that in Paul's day, if, if you had a wealthy landowner who did not have any biological heirs, then what they could do if they didn't want their name and their accomplishments to die with them, before they died, they could give the sonship to one of their slaves. And the moment that they did that, I mean, this, whatever you think would, would change your life today, it, will, it would not have changed your life as dramatically as sonship would to a slave in Paul's day. Because the moment that a former slave was granted sonship by their former master, not only did they cease to be a slave, but from that moment forward, they were treating as though they had been the biological heir to their master all along. This had thundering implications for a slave in Paul's day. I just want to tease out three. And keep in mind, this is the metaphor that Paul holds out to try to get you to understand what you already have in Jesus. So as we walk through this, just ask yourself, do you think of yourself and your life this way? Right? In Paul's day, first off, sonship meant wealth. Now, the day before you receive sonship, you're a slave, you have nothing to your name. You're going to live and die in poverty. The very moment that your master grants you the sonship, in that moment, absolutely everything that he has is legally now yours. A day before, you would have died penniless. Now, you stand to inherit absolutely everything that the father owns. And it's not because you've worked for it. It's not because you've earned it. It's not because you deserve it. It's because he granted it to you. So first off, sonship meant wealth. Secondly, sonship meant status. Right? In, in, in the, the Roman Empire and really every culture throughout human history, slaves were treated as, as basically subhuman objects. You could disrespect and mistreat and abuse and oftentimes even kill a slave with little to no repercussions whatsoever. But the moment that you received the sonship, people knew now that how they treated you 
was an extension of how they were actually treating your father. And so that very moment, not only could you look at yourself differently, but so would everyone else in society. You were now afforded a, a security, a significance, and a kind of social capital that in every sense of the word completely changed your life. But thirdly, and, and lastly, maybe most importantly, sonship meant relationship, right? As a slave, you related to your master in a very sort of fear-based, works-related way. It meant that there was no confidence that he was going to keep you around. Every day it was on you to justify your worth, to prove that you were worth keeping around, uh, you, you know, to outwork the people around you for fear that if you didn't, you'd be cut loose and have to basically die in poverty. But the moment that you were given sonship, you now had a, re a relationship with your father that no slave could, could even wrap their head around. And what that meant, among other things, is you had access and you had intimacy with him. No longer was there this horrible burden to prove yourself every day because you weren't relating as a slave to a master any longer. You were relating as a child to a father. And again, what Paul is saying is kind of an audacious thing. This is well before any other belief system dared to, to, to allow you to, to believe that you could relate to God this way. Paul is holding this out as the metaphor to try to get you to understand what became yours the moment you put your trust in Jesus. Now, like I said, most Christians, and see if this isn't true about you, because it's true about me. Most Christians, when they talk about salvation, when they think about Christianity, they have a tendency to think about it only in terms of what Jesus took away from me. Jesus took my sin, he took my shame, he took my guilt, he took my punishment, and that's great, but then they wind up going through life as though all God has done is basically wipe your slate clean, and now it's up to you to prove why he should keep you around. And that explains why a lot of Christians who are legitimately Christians never seem to be growing in things like love and joy and peace and patience, and they're still marked by this deep spiritual insecurity and they have to gossip about other people and try to tear each other down to, you know, build up their own sense of self-worth. It's because they only understand one half of what happened to them the moment they gave their life to Jesus. And what Paul is saying here in the, in the intro to the letter of Ephesians is that Christianity is not God taking your slate away, wiping it clean and handing it back to you so that you can fill it up. Christianity is God taking your slate from you and destroying it entirely and then handing a slate back to you that has been completely filled with the good works of Jesus Christ. And so to be a Christian is not just to be pardoned for the life that you did live. It's to now be rewarded for the life that you could have never lived, that Jesus Christ lived in your place. It's like getting out of jail when you were on death row, only to find as soon as you step outside the penitentiary that the president's there to award you with a Congressional Medal of Honor. That's what Paul is trying to get you to understand was yours the moment you gave your life to Jesus. That's a pretty good deal if you ask me. Now, all I did, all I did is offer you two of the every blessing package that, that Paul just sort of begins to touch on in these opening verses in Ephesians. And admittedly, I didn't have time to get into everything that he says here. You know, you, you may have uh, uh, noticed earlier he says some pretty profound things in verses 9 through 12, but since next week's teaching is going to focus on just those verses, I want to move on from here and ask what I said is going to be our, our, uh, our third question today. All right, we talked about where these blessings come from. We talked about what they are. But before I'm done, let me ask the question. Maybe you've never asked this before. Uh, how do you know if you have them? How do you know if you have every blessing in Jesus? And Paul answers that question three different times in this passage. I want to read it to you. He answers this for us in verses 6, 12, 
and 14. Verse 6, he tells us that God has done all this for us, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Then in verse 12, he tells us God has done all this for us so that we who'd already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. And then one more time, at the very end in verse 14, Paul says he's the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. So what Paul's saying here, and evidently he thought it was important for us to grasp, or he wouldn't have said it three times in this passage alone, is that if you've ever wondered, well, why does God give these blessings to any of us at all? That's why. He says it, basically saying the same thing three different times. God gives you these blessings so that his presence and his promises would be so glorious to you, simply meaning real to you, that it would cause you to erupt in praise. That's the purpose of these blessings. And so therefore, if you want to know whether or not you have these blessings, all you need to do is ask yourself uh, if God, who he is and what he's done for you, is so real to you that it leads you to praise him. That's how you know. Now, when I was putting this teaching together, this is where I was going to end the teaching. But the more that I sat on this this week, the more it dawned on me how unhelpful I would find this teaching if I was listening to it and it ended here. It's funny, I actually did a series through Ephesians back in 2016, and I type out all of my teachings before you all hear them. And so I, re- I reread what I did with this passage, you know, six years ago. And uh, this is basically, I basically ended it here. I just, the whole teaching was about these blessings that we have in Jesus. And the, the conclusion was, man, aren't these blessings great? Let's pray. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's certainly biblically based. But I'm in a much different place than I was six years ago. I'm sure you would say the same thing. And so I felt like this teaching would be incomplete if I didn't end by asking the question, what if these blessings aren't real to you? What if you know everything that I've talked about today? You know that these blessings are yours, and you're aware of them all with your head, but they're not real to your heart. And if I can get a little personal here on the front end of this series, the reason that I wanted to ask that question is because that's where I am. And if I'm being real transparent, it's where I've been uh, for a pretty long time now. I just finished a book. You may have noticed I carried this up here. I just finished a book um, called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, written by a pastor in New York named Pete Scazzaro. And there's only been a handful of books in my life that I feel like uh, God put it in my hands at just the right time. And this is a book that I would put into that category. Can't recommend it highly enough if you want to read it this summer or maybe go through it with your small group this fall. Uh, chapter four of this book alone was worth, made, made the whole thing worth reading. In chapter four of the book, the author is talking about something that he refers to as the wall. And when I read this, it felt like he was writing about my own life. So I'm going to read this to you. Um, and I would ask you while I do to ask yourself if any of this sounds familiar in your life. He said, the best way to understand the dynamics of the wall is to examine the classic work of St. John of the Cross called Dark Night of the Soul, which was written over 500 years ago. He described the journey in three phases. 
beginners, progressives, and perfect. To move out of the beginning stage, he means to move out of the beginning stage of Christianity, to begin to grow up spiritually, he argued, required the receiving of God's gift of the dark night or the wall. This is the, quote, ordinary way we grow in Christ. And a failure to understand this is one of the major reasons many start out well in their journeys but do not finish. So how do you know that you're in the dark night or the wall? And I'll ask you one more time. Please search yourself and ask yourself if any of what I'm about to read sounds familiar. How do you know? He says, our good feelings of God's presence evaporate. We feel the door of heaven has been shut as we pray. Darkness, helplessness, weariness, a sense of failure or defeat, barrenness, emptiness, dryness descend upon us. The Christian disciplines that have served us up to this time, quote, no longer work. We cannot see what God is doing, and we see little visible fruit in our lives. I highlighted that whole thing because I read that and thought, how does this author know so much about my life? As soon as I read that, I emailed a, a trusted friend of mine, and I said, I feel like that's the biography of my life. I invited him to read it. I put it on a few other people's radar from this church, and one of them actually just recently reached out to me and said they can't stop crying after chapter one. So really, I think it's worth your time. That's where I am. It's where I've been for a while, if I'm being honest. And I want to be real clear here. I'm not having a crisis of faith. I'm not doubting the truth of Christianity, the existence of God, the validity of God's word, anything like that. It's just just been a while since what I know with my head has been real to my heart. Now, maybe I'm utterly alone in this universe and everybody else is tripping over their spiritual fruit on the way into church this morning, but maybe there's a chance that somebody else can say, yeah, that sounds a lot like me too, and I've been there longer than I care to admit. What do you do if you're there? What do you do if you know that you have these blessings, but they're not so real to you that they're leading you to praise God? You know what you do? You know what you do. You choose to praise God until those blessings become real to you again. Let me ask you, what athlete has ever become great who only choose to practice when it was easy to do so? For the married couples in the house, what marriage has ever become great apart from two people deciding to put in the work even when it would have been easier to walk away? Or or who has ever done anything of any lasting value or worth apart from a profound amount of discipline? Anybody that's lived life for any length of time knows it doesn't work that way, and we should not expect it to be any different in the spiritual realm. And I'll just tell you, no one has ever become a great man or woman of God, a, a person of depth and substance and wisdom. No one's ever become a spiritual oak that can stand the test of time and the storms of life and and be, you know, a source of stability and shelter for others. No one has ever gotten to there by only choosing to praise God when it was easy for them to do so. And if you want a perfect example of this, you need look no further than the author of this letter, Paul himself. 
He starts this letter coming out the gate with so much joy and so much excitement. You would think that Paul was in a place where God has just caused his wildest dreams to come true. But what we know is that Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians while he was imprisoned in Rome, confined to house arrest, handcuffed to a Roman soldier, unable to do that which he loved to do, and yet here he is choosing to praise. you have any idea how convicting that would be to be a member of the church at Ephesus 2,000 years ago and read those words? Because I know this about the people of Ephesus. They're made of the same stuff that you and I are. And they had just as much proclivity to go through life obsessed about their cares and their affairs and their worries and their families and their careers and their money and their reputation. And here Paul is chained to a Roman soldier every day believing this could be his last day breathing and he's writing this letter saying, I can't believe how good he's been to me. I can't believe what Jesus has made available to me. I can't believe what I have as a child of God. This is, this is the picture of somebody who chose to praise and that's my challenge for us today. I'm gonna call the worship team up and we'll close with this. Maybe you're here today and you have love, joy, peace, and patience falling out of your pockets. Amen, I'm happy for you. But maybe that's not where you're at. Maybe you're in what St. John called the dark night. Maybe you're what Pete Scazzaro calls, maybe you're at the wall. And if that's where you're coming from, I want to invite you to choose to make the decision to praise God for what he's given you, even if what he's given you isn't as real to you as it should be. Because in my experience, it's as I make the decision to praise God that my heart is led into his presence. And when my heart is in his presence, it's only there that who he is and what he's done becomes as real to me as it needs to be. So we're going to end this service and begin this series by doing exactly that. We're going to have one final song, and during that song, you're invited to come up to either one of these tables and take communion. Take the bread, take the juice, take it back to your seat, and take some time, just you and God. I'd ask you, just take these next several minutes Deal with God and let God deal with you. I don't know what God would say to you based on Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. I know he has something to say. Or maybe you have some things to say to him. After this song's over, I'm going to come back up here. We're going to take communion together as a family. We're going to take communion as a church. And as we do, we are declaring as one that regardless of how we feel today, there's a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb that has secured for us forever every spiritual blessing by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. That's it. That's all.